to The Cutaway, episode two. I am Max Pegues. And I'm DJ WMDMA. We are here to deliver whimsical musings on foreign and domestic policy. Maneuverings on Capitol Hill. The White House legislative calendar. As well as some lighthearted takes on national events or, uh, or something like that. On today's pod, we will be discussing how the Trump administration is handling the humanitarian crisis in Puerto Rico, the recent German election, and how it appropriately summarizes an unusual year for global elections, new political movements, social media controversy, cyber warfare, and an ever so multidimensional Russian foreign policy. What? The Russians have foreign policy on there and just undermining every single other country They have thousands of different kinds of foreign policy. They have thousands of foreign policies. Also on today's pod, we will be discussing the rise of Christian media under Trump, all of his bullshit going on with the NFL. We will uh, recap the healthcare fight uh, that led to the end of the reconciliation period for ACA repeal um, and some other odds and ends. Um, Also later on the pod, we will air my recent interview with Tyler Crochet uh, from the uh, Gamecock Recovery Program here at USC. So stick around and we will be digging into all that and more on today's episode of The Cutaway. But before we get into some of these larger trends, uh, we have to talk about uh, what happened with this latest mass shooting in Nevada over the weekend. Sunday, October 1st, Stephen Paddock opened fire on a sold-out crowd of the Route 91 Harvest Country Music Festival in Las Vegas, Nevada. He was holed up in a 32nd floor hotel room of the Mandalay Bay Resort. This room overlooked the outdoor venue. Paddock, 64 years old, was known as a multi-millionaire real estate investor. Harrowing video from, uh, from various sources show people running for their lives while the sound of automatic gunfire echoes in the background. Um, upon breaching his hotel room, police found nearly 20 guns, hundreds of rounds of ammunition, um, as well as explosive devices in his room. Um, but Paddock uh, killed himself uh, before police could actually breach his hotel room. This attack resulted in nearly 60 people dead and probably still counting, and over 500 injured, making it the deadliest mass shooting in American history. Uh, I wish I could say I'm shocked by this, but honestly, it's uh, exhausting to keep talking about this. Um, And people on the right are just saying it's the time to finally discuss gun gun control, which, uh, you know, could have been done every time it's happened since 1966, which was the first modern mass shooting and kind of brought the term into the American lexicon. But here we are again. Right, absolutely. And again, there's still you know, zero action from Congress or from the president. Um, there's just zero action all the way around. All, everyone's tweeting that, oh, our thoughts and prayers are with these people. And it's, admittedly, I have no problem with that. If you, if part of your faith or spirituality or whatever is that you pray for these people you pray for the families um that's great but you know we got our, so far. Right, right we've got ourselves into this mess um by a lack of action and we can only get out of it by actually acting um and we can't talk about any of like the root causes of this or start to delve into it without talking about the nra in south carolina alone for instance the nra has donated over one hundred thousand dollars um, to congressional representatives. Uh, for instance, just $30,000 to Lindsey Graham, $19,000 to Joe Wilson, $18,000 to Tim Scott, 11000 to Mick Mulvaney. Um, but to put this into perspective, North Carolina has received nearly 
Florida at 188,000, Alabama at 111,000, and ironically, yet predictably, only 55,000 received uh, from congressmen in Georgia. Moreover, when you talk about money, the NRA likes to pretend that they're not this like massive lobbying force and that they don't control like over half the government when in reality, the despicable fact is they control everybody. They get people fired up to go out and do things like this. They release these advertisements and programming. You could see just from NRA TV on Twitter, they have these clips of like Dana Lesh and that other guy, that big white guy that they get on TV to trot out all this like right wing propaganda and say that like Democrats are coming for your guns, Black Lives Matter, they're lining up in the in the highways so they can come and kill you and do all these. I mean, it's literally like 19th century, early Jim Crow rhetoric in 2017. And the NRA donated, I think it was something to the tune of $30 million to uh, the Trump-Pence campaign. And, you know, President Trump went up in front of the NRA and said, you, you will have a true friend in the White House. The whole thing is, uh, it's, it's almost mind-boggling that we've gotten to the point where we have one of the deadliest, no, not one of, we have the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history, and people aren't surprised. There's almost like a formula to how this goes, right? We have politicians on the news coming out saying that, oh, we offer our thoughts and prayers, we're going to dig into what happened here, we're going to conduct a thorough investigation. Meanwhile, all that's going to happen is Congress is going to shelve whatever kind of, you know, uh, gun reform that they're thinking about passing, actually making it easier to get guns, um, because obviously they can't, they can't be like, oh, we're going to make it easier for you to get silencers, we're going to make it easier for you to get high-capacity magazines and the like, because that would be a little bit too insensitive, even though, like, Wayne LaPierre controls all these people. I guess one aspect that we could potentially lose sight of, um, but it never really loses its meaning, is that every single American should never stop going about their daily life. Uh, I remember the day of the Charlie Hebdo shooting, being in Paris, receiving a text message from your family, knowing that uh, there were developments throughout the day on French media. And later in that day, I, was, I would walk throughout Paris. Granted, I was five to 10 minutes away from anything, uh, you know, away from the Champs-Élysées, but I was walking around. What was most special about that day was uh, Everyone was walking around, you know, relatively quickly. They were looking around probably more frequently than they had been the day before, but there were considerably more people outside on the street walking around. I mean, I think it shows some sort of a substance or valiant grace that the French people might possess, but Americans never really need to lose sight of the fact that uh, everything continues. But in the same way, basically living your life uh, moments after something like this tragic event occurs is not enough to actually impact legislation moving forward. And so that's why we mentioned the NRA, that's why we mentioned the numbers behind the NRA and what sort of social presence they carry election after election. But it is multidimensional, our reactions. Right, definitely, and I think to that end, like. Most people who follow any kind of like legislation realize that legislation is 
way slower than like the national conversation, right? Mostly because, I mean, we see this um, within individual parties that there are various like caucuses or wings or whatever you want, however you want to identify them. And it's hard to get all those groups together to like actually pass legislation. But in the meantime, you know, a shooting like this happens and we're like, oh my God, what do we do here? Um, because there are, you know, constitutional absolutists who think that oh, the second amendment exists, we have the right to have guns. And that kind of thinking is great for certain amendments, like in a, being a First Amendment absolutist, largely I agree with. It allows me to, to get up here and say the kind of things that I say on this podcast. But the flip side of that is if you're going to be an absolutist on every single amendment, um, I mean, and Bill O'Reilly captured this perfectly, and there was a lot of um, outrage on social media over this comment, but he says that shootings like this are the cost of freedom, that the Second Amendment you know, means that mostly normal people can arm themselves, but that also means that the loons can too. And that's not good enough for me. You know, it's that's turning a, <laughs> the idea or notion of freedom into a larger religious doctrine. Almost. Right. And, and that's right. It's, it's not good. That, that doesn't cut it for me. You know, like I remember a little over a year ago when the Pulse nightclub shooting happened, you know, me being from Florida and having a lot of friends um, in the LGBT community, um, who live in Orlando and who were at that nightclub that night, you know, when that was the deadliest shooting and nothing got done, I was fucking heartbroken, right? I mean, these are people who get killed. It's, this isn't like, even, I mean, I'm a pacifist to the nth degree and I think war is bad enough as it is, you know, but people are like, you know, cold to that. And it's almost like we're getting colder to domestic violence here at home. And to that end, I think like we're onto something here where you can trace it back to the NRA. There was a graphic in the Washington Post recently that showed a diagram of how many states have um, elected representatives who are not necessarily controlled by the NRA, but at least have received donations from the NRA. Mm -hmm. And, and most are, states, uh, granted most states are under $100,000 of donations. I right, would say maybe around 36. But there are only seven states that have totally not accepted donations from the NRA. And this is like a bipartisan issue. It's not just Republicans. It's not just right-wingers. It's not just the Freedom Caucus in the House. Like, there are Democrats that have even accepted donations from the NRA. Even if it's $1,000, the NRA will come to collect on that $1,000. But those seven states are also very densely populated. And, uh, I mean, they're like Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts. Right. Polling has shown recently that, you know, I think the number is something around 70% of Americans currently don't own guns. I think the number is around 90% of people want drastic gun reform. But within that 30%, uh, those who either have uh, access to guns or possess guns, it's a, a vast arrangement of different kinds of people. And all this is to say that um, this whole uh, argument is really fucking exhausting, but it's something that we need to explore in this country because we can't on one hand say that we're a force for good we're a force for life, we're a force for growth. You know, we care about people living good lives, living good, prosperous lives, and at the same time, stand by idly while we're letting us, you know, kill each other through just senseless gun violence. And so... What's always um, stressed, especially with the recent election, is that Americans like to emphasize how they're unique or how they're different. Uh, right, this more American than, exceptionalism. Right, more than... Um, how they identify as Americans or how they identify as part of a unified whole. Which is like exactly the fucking problem. Stick around. Uh, coming up next, we are going to be 
discussing slightly less depressing, although still very important news that often gets covered up after a mass shooting. Um, we're going to be talking about the humanitarian crisis going on in Puerto Rico, so stick around and we'll be discussing that next. Okay, we are back. So following in the wake of Hurricane Maria, Category 5 storm, which absolutely devastated the entire island of Puerto Rico, um, we are now dealing with relief efforts down there. And just to give our audience a brief overview, Donald Trump waited over a week before providing any kind of response. And so on September 24th, um, Hillary Clinton urged Donald Trump and Secretary Mattis um, through Twitter, of course, because that's the only thing that Donald Trump keeps up with, um, to send the USNS Comfort, a part of uh, the naval fleet that is essentially a floating hospital. I actually had to research this. It was, it was pretty fucking interesting. Is it like an inner tube? <laughs> yeah, it's one big inner tube. No, it's like a, an aircraft carrier that has been like converted to be a floating hospital and provides relief throughout the eastern seaboard of the United States as well as throughout the Atlantic Ocean or something. It was very interesting to read up on. Um, but so that, that is now part of the relief effort in Puerto Rico as well as the, uh, the Rhode Island National Guard um, has sent, you know, they sent several uh, supply aircraft um, and they put Lester Holt on one, <laughs> on one of the planes uh, Who, uh, to report down absolutely there. absolutely demanded that he could take Brian Williams in his suitcase. Well, the thing is, he didn't even need, need to demand that because Brian Williams already stowed away. He like he stowed away in one of the crates so he could burst out and be like, Brian Williams is here in Puerto Rico. <laughs> Jeez. And uh, also in the wake of this, there it wouldn't be a natural disaster without without Donald Trump engaging in some sort of political buffoonery and has been publicly feuding with the mayor of San Juan engaging in the same type of uh, misogynist language he used against Hillary Clinton and countless other um, female opponents. Well, um, do, you, do you think he arrived and thought the mayor was named San Juan? Right. He probably honestly had no idea. He, he had no idea that they even had a mayor. He, yeah. Well, he probably thought he was in Florida. Right. Well, okay, so this is, uh, this is my theory on Donald Trump's actual trip down to Puerto Rico. He was flying in on Marine One, and they're flying over the island, getting ready to land at their LZ. And he's he's making these comments like, oh my God, like I can't, where are we? This is horrible. What are we looking at? And then he pulled out his t-shirt gun right. and started firing into the air. Right. He fi started firing MAGA shirts into the air. And they're like, Mr. President, that's probably not a good idea because we're over Puerto Rico right now. This is the island that was devastated. And Donald Trump is just absolutely shocked because he didn't think Puerto Rico was a real place. He was like, I thought all Puerto Ricans came from Queens. I didn't think it was a real place. <laughs> so in the wake of this horrible in the wake of this horrible disaster, Donald Trump took a week to suspend the Jones Act, which for those who don't know, it is an arcane law from the early 20th century that limited shipping options to Puerto Rico. Essentially, this Jones Act says that Anytime that we are shipping American goods, it has to be on American ships. Um, and by delaying, you know, a temporary suspension or whatever of this of this law, it made it very difficult to get necessary supplies down to the people of Puerto Rico, um, both quickly and um, and cheaply. And so, in the whole wake of this, we've seen Donald Trump just picking fight after fight, um, you know, in the in the news that he thinks he can win, and anything that 
I mean, it doesn't matter. He'll try and spin it as yeah. a win no matter what. You guys what. got it real bad. I'm looking around really, really bad. <laughs> you got it bad, and that ain't good. Like, he's like, this whole thing has shown that he has a 100-word vocabulary. He tells people, like, oh, blah, 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 here's some water, here's some paper towels, like, have a good time. Literally said, have a good time. Like I've always said, there's a parrot and a white man typing on a computer, is what he's saying. It's, and his name is Stephen Miller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so... This whole thing uh, has been one big uh, political shit show and PR shit show after another for, for the Trump administration. He went to Puerto Rico finally um, to visit with um, Puerto Rican uh, government leaders um, and to follow up on what uh, FEMA and first responders are down there doing. He held a press conference where he made an off-the-cuff remark saying that, oh, you know, you really screwed up our budget here. Um, as if, you know, the people of Puerto Rico uh, could have prevented a Category 5 storm from devastating their island. Um, and essentially, what this shows is that Donald Trump has a complete lack of understanding in, in what's going on. And I think the highlights of his trip uh, were that statement saying that you really screwed up our, our budget. And there's been numerous GIFs circulating Twitter and the Internet um, where Donald Trump went to a distribution center, a supply, a supply distribution center, and was throwing out uh, rolls of paper towels into the crowd as if he was shooting three-pointers. At first he was handing them out, but people weren't like going nuts over that. And so he started just shooting them out into the crowd and then people were going nuts because it's hysterical to see <laughs> oh, this old man being like, this is a fucking good idea. But I honestly think the only reason he did that and Austin hit on this is because when they were flying in, he's ready to shoot MAGA shirts and hats out of a t-shirt can. Yeah. Well, he thought it was uh, probably, like I said, the Everglades. Right, yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, the alligators need some MAGA hats. Right, yeah. um, so if this reaction seems delayed, selfish, and to be a complete fiasco uh, to this disaster and subsequent relief, uh, it's because it is. It seems like the U.S. has... Um, really ignored Puerto Rico currently, right now, when they're uh, most in need. And throughout history, uh, it's because it does. Since the turn of the century, the U.S. has allowed federal regulations to either expire because they're disinterested in Puerto Rico as a territory, much less something that resembles the qualifications of a state. Sometimes these, uh, these same pieces of legislation are repealed. Sometimes the original legislation that had been passed no longer even applies to Puerto Rico as whatever it is, whatever status it holds. Um, and the fundamental motivation behind this uh, push and pull is that it has no natural resources useful to the mainland. It's never historically been self-sufficient or sustainable relative to, say, Hawaii or other territories that were acquired in the 20th century, around the Spanish-American War, basically. Right, and I think uh, no matter what, we're in this for the long haul, because like you hit on, they were in the middle of an economic crisis before the storm hit, where the United States was essentially the only thing keeping their economy from having, you know, the bottom fall out from underneath it. Um, and now, um, in the wake of the storm, we're really in for the long haul here when it comes to um, rebuilding um, Puerto Rico physically and economically. Um, that's going to be a long road to recovery. Well, so far, um, the initiative has been started with uh, rebuilding certain areas of San Juan with 
t-shirts and paper towels. So right. we'll see how that goes. All right, everyone. That wraps up Puerto Rico and stick around when we delve into the German election. Not the German election, the German election. Okay, we are back here on this episode of The Cutaway talking about the recent German election, um, what it means for the global community, what it means for Germany as a whole. So before we delve into the specifics of the election and the uh, specific things at play, um, Austin, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what Germany looked like going into the election. And aside from Germany being the most populous and wealthiest country in Europe, why is it important on uh, many levels? Um, and what are we even talking about here? So the uh, German election is a point of emphasis more so than perhaps the French election or other elections throughout Western Europe because uh, Germany throughout the past 10, 15 years has sort of asserted itself as uh, a very unique nation relative to the other countries that surround it. Uh, and what I mean by that is that Germany is generally a prototype of globalization. It depends on like a multilateral order. Um, so Germany is like the world's greatest, if not only example of what many foreign policy experts, experts would say is a postmodern power. So it's sort of an arbiter of a lot of decisions, both to the left and right of it, east and west, um, because it avoids hard power. Uh, so quite literally, it has uh, diminishing efforts in Mali, just like the French have been there with them in Afghanistan and Lithuania. Uh, so it tries to build other forms of defense. So you have geopolitical alliances, uh, diplomatic compro compromises, and long-term investments uh, throughout Europe, but also abroad. So does this put Germany sometimes at odds against um, particularly the United States when it comes to treaties like NATO, which is very specifically like a military defense type of treaty. Yeah, exactly. So it all, it, it's always in the middle of those disputes. And somehow it makes its way out. But uh, in the same vein, Germany makes sanctions happen. So the only way that sanctions against Russia for invading East Ukraine um, could have materialized after Poland had found initial problem in uh, such military efforts is because Germany intervened and garnered enough support for these sanctions to occur. So going into that like forceful attitude of power within Europe, you have Merkel over the past year or two years um, approaching the US with a uh, kind of a degree of confrontation and less about damage control through uh, economic concessions. So recently Trump was in Europe <coughs> speaking to different members of the EU, stating that you know many parts of Europe, especially Germany, they haven't done enough to improve their military or spend enough on defense. Stating that every European country should at least uh, have a 2% allocation to defense of their, within their GDP. Germany has 1.2%. So German citizens, meanwhile, seem hesitant to even endorse their existing military obligations, uh, even while the rest of the world is very critical of uh, a lack of spending. So there's this general feeling of Germany largely happy with the structure of the European Union, while many others are not. And so you basically have France and Germany in the center of it all, keeping the EU together. So from an economic standpoint, Germany is not near where it had been, uh, nor really aligned with the global perception that it once uh, known for. 
So you have, as I was stating earlier, uh, France and the French economy really partnering up with Germany kind of at the last moment to keep the Eurozone and its uh, legitimacy moving forward in sync with uh, hopefully the rest of the, of the global economy. We saw this as early as two weeks ago with uh, Siemens merging with Alstom, both are uh, major economic giants in both Germany and France and uh, plans to merge the ICE train and the TGV in uh, France to become one centralized transportation giant, basically. You couple that with the German car industry uh, sort of falling apart over the past few years with the strong degree of cartelism. They made a gamble investing in diesel engines when every virtually every single other car brand is moving the opposite way. Um, but the country's low investment rate and high energy costs have hurt its rankings on uh, digital and infrastructural competitiveness. So as I, as I mentioned, uh, France is sort of taking advantage of Germany's uh, perceived economic growth when in fact it's sort of deteriorating and uh, going the opposite way that it needs to go. Germans are even more hostile than the French uh, to like a free trade treaty with America to uh, big data giants like Google and others. Um, so it kind of sets itself, sets itself up for failure. You can also align that with the fact that German uh, society is also in flux. So you have the integration of uh, 1.2 million refugees from starting in 2015. And so the German public, German society is having a difficult time defining or uh, uh, having the structure in place to understand what a new form of Germanness or a new national identity could possibly suppose. Right, so they're like dealing with the growing pains of globalization, both yeah. culturally and particularly economically as well. Right. But yeah, it's directly in their face. Uh, not only in numbers, but when they walk out of the door in the morning. Right, yeah. So, you know, historically Germany has always uh, been a very isolated and uh, cohesive culture. So how do you form this new hybrid nationality? Um, so the left avoids the subject, but the right proposes simply to like stamp a traditional you know, German identity on these newcomers. So it's either right, like assimilate or get the fuck out, right. like not too dissimilar than how the U.S. was yeah, exactly. throughout the yeah. 20th century. Yeah. So it's either, either indifference or isolating them. So um, economics aside, uh, national identity aside, uh, Germany has one blinding enemy, and it's throughout history, it's always been itself. Uh, it's Nazi past really causes Germans to not have confidence in their own abilities, but they lack faith in um, what their intentions are. What, you know, how could they possibly approach the rest of the world with such a history? And so, obviously, it directly impacts defense spending, but it also impacts um, how confident they are going into embracing new forms or new sectors within the economy. Right, yeah, because the first thing that comes to mind for like most countries is when you think about a strong Germany again, you think about, well, great, now we're just going to see rise to another, yeah. you know, like right-wing dictator, right. which like uh, in their recent history, they've shown under the leadership of Merkel that that's just not the case. Yeah, um, but lack of faith or lack of confidence, um, Germany still has established a very essential identity of understanding that it is the only country in the world 
like it in that it, it sort of uh, benefits from this web of economic, cultural, diplomatic sources that all convene and intersect and uh, yeah, the, the, the power really flows not from dominance within Western Europe or from within that part of uh, the world, but it's sort of like a way to accommodate all these different forces from all different sides. Right. So it, it's like literally like, like I said earlier, like the growing pains of globalism where they're getting to reap some of the benefits of it, but they're also at the same time really having to figure out how to quickly step up to the learning curve. Otherwise, right. they're going to be totally fucked. <laughs> yeah. It's like I mean, a very dangerous balancing act. Yeah. So when it comes to the recent election, Germany is uh, very unlike America, and you know where we have a two-party system. Germany has several different political parties, and representation in their parliament um, is dependent on how much uh, percentage of the vote that they get. And they also form coalitions uh, within their parliament and uh, to create stronger mandates to lead and uh, to better represent their uh, electorate. So maybe you could just walk us through some of like the basic points of what their parties are, yeah. who their elected representatives are, Merkel's party. Yeah, so the CDU, which is Merkel's party, the Christian Democrats, uh, they are the sort of catch-all party, they're the major party. And when you mention coalitions, they are the party that form grand coalitions. So when people think of grand coalitions, you think of the CDU and the Social Democrats, the SPD. Right, so in terms of Christian Democrat, and the SPD, the Social Democrat. Like in uh, in the United States, we think Democrat, we think left. But in Germany, the CDU is like a center-right center -right party, center -right. right? And then the, the SDP, Social Democrat, is uh, center-left. Right, yeah, so they're sort of the, if President Obama had ever formed a party, it would be the SPD. So if, you know, it sort of stands for social democracy, any social justice issue advocates for any movement that would pursue those issues, uh, but strongly advocates a social market economy. But uh, in addition to that, you also have not necessarily fringe parties, but parties that are well, within this election actually have a presence. You have the Greens, uh, which emphasize like a new left, a new social, any new social movement, they began out of anti-nuclear power sentiments um, and kind of just endorse any any global peace or any uh, efforts made towards uh, peace treaties or negotiation. Um, but the fifth party of, you know, within the parliament would be Die Linke, which is the left or far left. Uh, and they're not, they're not too far to the left to garner so much attention that people think they're extremists. Um, but they do, at times, they attract suspicions of uh, becoming like communist linked or right, whatever. Yeah. Would, which one would Die Linke or the Green Party be considered like the Bernie wing of Germany? Die Linke. Die Linke. Yeah. The, the, uh, the Greens would be like a, I guess like a Ron Paul. <laughs> the, the Libertarians. <laughs> yeah. But okay, so Die Linke the Green is like, uh, yeah. Right. This is how the Green Party raises money. For their candidates, they sell those like uh, meat preservation things where you can like uh, shrink wrap and salt all your venison and store it for like fifty years or whatever when the nuclear uh, right. So those are the, the greens, comes. but the, the left are the red lines. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. All uh, right. So now you know exactly uh, exactly yeah, what you're good. looking at. Here we go. 
So down to the results. Um, yes, Merkel was reelected for her fourth term, but uh, that doesn't really mean a whole lot because the rest of the election really, it pointed out problems within the German political system that uh, few had really ever expected. So yes, it was a somber day for the Christian Democrats and the social Democrats who are are in no position to form a grand coalition again because the social democrats want to go their own way. Um, the radical right-wing party entered the legislature for the first time in half a century. And just to even have that sentence uh, leave my mouth is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the, the notion that there is going to be a, like a, and when we say far right, this is not like the Tea Party, this is not like the House Freedom Caucus, this is like, Nazi Germany having representation in their parliament again. Yeah. But just as a reference point, in 2013, the AfD alternative for Deutschland, uh, they failed to pass the 5% threshold, which is uh, sort of this benchmark quality within uh, German elections and subsequently German parliament uh, to allow certain parties to be represented within parliament. They did not make the 5% threshold in 2013, basically as a anti-Euro party. Uh, and now that they've gained 13%, uh, they've become the third largest force in the Bundestag. But as I was, as we had both mentioned earlier, you have the Grand Coalition. So the CDU and SDP, which helped Merkel win her second term, uh, they were both significantly punished. Merkel had her worst result as a politician at 33% of the vote. The Social Democrats had worst outcomes since 1949. Right, so this shows that there are like vast uh, like anti-establishment um, sentiments within Germany and I, like this happens all the time where you see a, a far-right conservative candidate coming out and the first thing to do anywhere in the world is to compare him to Hitler but like this is Germany like <laughs> this is one place where that comparison you know has come true and so um, the fact that these two parties which have been essentially like co-leading Germany for the last like decade or more are now out of power um, is pretty terrifying. You could even make the assertion that since we're in 2017 in an era of people knowing your intentions and knowing your identity more so than ever because it's upfront and obvious that alternative for Deutschland's intentions were were made known and made uh, very boorishly in <laughs> known across the German public because of uh, them having such an online presence. Right, exactly. I mean, I, I know some of their, like, campaign... Not to compare it to anything happening in the 30s, right. but... Yeah, and, like, for instance, some of, like, just to show you how overt this party is, I know that some of their campaign posters, um, just to show, like, the anti-Muslim sentiments that they had, where they would be like, oh... Uh, no pork allowed under Sharia. Well, we love it. And then with that, like, go vote AFD. Like, it's incredible. Or, yeah, no other places related to uh, women and the hijab. And, really, uh, where, versus wearing a bikini women. or something like that, yeah. Right, so uh, the liberals returned after a four-year hiatus at 10%, and the Greens uh, came in at 9%. They will likely form their own coalition to form something that would hopefully defeat uh, AFD. But voter turnout at 77% was significantly higher, and that's uh, a, a very alarming stat. Right, because that just goes to show that with the Social Democrats and Christian Democrats, 
doing worse in this election. And, right, and this right and this far right party having representation within their parliament now, that means that higher voter turnout means that there were people who wanted this mm -hmm. in Germany. There are people who want this far right uh, agenda. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. Um, so this is Merkel's fourth term. She'll likely form a coalition between three different parties, uh, and you can easily eliminate the SDP, the Social Democrats, from that coalition. Um, the SDP are sort of skeptics to uh, European immigration policy, and that's sort of Merkel's hallmark policy. Um, you know, they wanted a more restrictive one because uh, they realized that a lot of the large part of Germany is very uh, indifferent to integrating. Uh, 1.2 million people. Uh, but as a side note, many believe and many have, you know, you can obviously prove on some level that the Kremlin, uh, they, their tactics of official and unofficial propaganda supported the AFD from the very beginning. Um, right. And using like some of the same strategies that they did in the United States. Yeah. You know, it's just supplanting this, you know, far right, <laughs> like mm -hmm. whack job um candidates you know what i mean around election time it's it's fucking incredible yeah and the afd's intentions are outright um they're sort of you know they're they aren't coy about it at all uh the party is bent really on disruption of the current system and destruction of what germany had grown to be in a uh, multilateral order the postmodern power the prototype of the middleman, basically. Right, exactly. Like, if you're curious about what Steve Bannon wants and what <laughs> what would really get him excited, like you're seeing it right now in Germany. Like, there's a now there's like a disruptive force within their parliament. Not only does it deface the uh, post-war centrism that Germany has worked very hard to implement, you know, the atonement for the Holocaust, xenophobia, you know, anything, but it's very anti-NATO, anti-Muslim, overtly pro-Russian. AFD's leadership really kind of refuses to d distance itself from any uh, anti-Semitic or Islamophobic uh, elements, as you were mentioning in campaign posters. But um, what's stemming from that, we noticed uh, that the du they doubled their number of supporters within a month. So that immediately speaks to online presence and uh, what's happening outside of public perception. So you have uh, a taboo-breaking campaign waged on all fronts. You have social media supported by uh, repurposed Russian bots, which we saw have seen in every election recently. Uh, and there are reports uh, that I was reading of the AFD sending protesters to each of Merkel's appearances and just screaming it as loud as they could, and like just you know having these <laughs> egregious like why can't there be jobs like that in the United States? I will gladly show up to a Donald Trump uh, campaign event and just scream. Like not even like saying anything, so, like not not even. You do it around the house, right? Yeah, exactly. I'll just gonna go around like screaming. I'll bring my bullhorn, my laser pointer. <laughs> yeah, your binoculars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll be great. Uh, and Alexander Gulen, which is the leader of the AFD, um, I, I'm assuming he stole these quotes right from Trump. He promised to hunt down the government, quote unquote, <laughs> and take back our country. Um, he's probably just reading from. He probably was reading Donald Trump's, Trump's tweets from like five years ago. <laughs> it's like these these seem like a good idea. Yeah, just like manuscript of uh, yeah. Friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. These are like the early uh, early lines from the uh, season one of The Apprentice. <laughs> Why is this even happening? Goes to show that 
two-thirds in exit polls showed more concern about crime, immigration, terrorism, um, and remained worried uh, than they should have with all of these factors at play. Two-thirds of AFD have casted their vote in protest, in protest rather than uh, any sort of act of conviction or what they actually believe in. So it's the same thing that happened here. We want to revolt against the system that we don't even see ourselves being a part of, um, even though we have really no idea what the repercussions could be, much less what the actual party is uh, fighting for. Right, exactly. I mean, and this has been like a wave of right-wing populism, really like globally. Um, I mean, we've seen it happen in this country in the last election. Um, it was happening in the French election. Um, and now it's happened again in this German election. Well, at least uh, the Front National was a party for decades. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, but I mean, still the fact is there's this overriding um, sentiment here um, that we're seeing take place in all these recent elections. And I mean, I think there's something to say about this like deeply entrenched like establishment class within government. But I think that <laughs> we're seeing like the wrong response to it. The, the problem is not to like put like a right wing authoritarian um, regime empowered or <laughs> to replace it. Fucking incredible. Yeah, but you could also view it as a Merkel allowing this to happen. She has just sort of, over the past several years shown a general inability to uh, speak to ordinary German concerns. And a lot of most concerns are uh, a worried uh, older population that are still entrenched in a lot of nationalist beliefs and feelings. But not only that, but also about institutions and civic society's ability to cope with their historic challenge of hating themselves. The AFD is sort of this an, another installment of encouragement to other right-wing populist groups um, to win elections, even though they haven't occurred in, in France or the Netherlands. Or uh, So with all this uh, fear and anxiety related to the re election results, what can really be said about the future of Germany? Give them Paxil. Zoloft. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Make it rain from the Bundestag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be a really great allocation of uh, German funds. That, that's what Merkel should tell that to Trump. We're using that, okay, we're contributing 1.2% of our GDP to NATO, and the other 0.8% we're going to buy benzos <laughs> and give them to all of Germany. Right. We're going to have the German people hopped up on benzos. benzos. Yeah. Oh, that's, she's going to change her name to President Gone Off These Benzos. Yeah. <laughs> no more right wing populism. Xanax for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Chancellor extended release. Yeah. Uh, so, with 1.2 million AFD voters, that means that half a million Social Democrats and nearly 1 million uh, CDU voters uh, did not appear at the ballot or were taken from were taken for the AFD. Um, so the AFD leadership has no experience, even though they've had uh, all of these millions of voters come to the ballot in their support. Right. But like literally, this is literally the same thing that happened to Donald Trump. Like all the like suddenly like millions of people came out and supported him, and he's got to do this job, and he's like, "What the fuck do I do now?" It's like, it's like all these AFD people are going to be in the parliament. They're going to be like. I don't even know the rules. Like, yeah. like where's the be, bathroom? Yeah, yeah. Where's the cloakroom? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I mean, even with economic concerns, the AFD will have absolutely no idea what to do as far as business legislation goes. <laughs> I, got, I would love to sit in like some of the first like budgetary talks that they have to go through. Right. And they're like trying to get the AFD members' opinion on something, and they're like, uh. I don't know, ask him. Yeah, like, <laughs> all of their numbers are in rubles and they go yeah. to speak and they're like, oh, these numbers don't really make any sense. Uh, 
So, yeah, but uh, the, I mean, the Democrats have to change their strategy um, and that currently Demo <laughs> Democrats lose the fight because they focus more on um, slogans and they focus on on morals, basically. And they have to learn to fight uh, the enemies on the issues and on merits, um, something that the far right has always lacked. I mean, historically, but also now. But uh, I don't know. They need to address the issues that sent about 13% of Germans voting uh, the way they did. And the, <laughs> and the fact that the, this same 13% came from uh, this potentially being Merkel's from her own party uh, speaks volumes. But, you know, a population doesn't have a uh, productive channel for political activism anymore. Um, so to see change, you irrationally vote for what you think is the vanguard party, and that unfortunately and fallaciously is this far right. Yeah, you know the the outsiders with this flood of, pl of questions will deconstructing nationalism in Europe be Merkel's last greatest challenge moving forward. And on top of that, Germany has a number of issues: uh, you know, integration efforts, infrastructure spending. And they have to resolve this complicated relationship with Russia now since Russia has, um, you know, fucked with their election too. Uh, but um, as far as Democrats sort of reevaluating how they attack their opponent, uh, but to uh, to uproot the system already in place, you have to address the Putin whispers or the Putin Bestia in each party. Uh, who are basically individuals who lobby for a stronger German-Russian relationship um, by promising that they will, you know, manage these German firms throughout Eastern Europe and create uh, benefits, financial benefits. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up our segment on the German election. And when we come back, we will be talking about Russian Facebook bots. <laughs> Russian Twitter bots. So yet, say that Russians didn't have, in fact, political strategists within German political parties or many European political parties um, that lobby for Russian interests. Um, say that Russia has shown time and time again to manipulate outside of these parties. Um, say they only conducted cyber attacks across various cyber espionage groups. Say it ain't so. Say it ain't so. So say they had no direct influence whatsoever and just did everything on the internet through cyber attacks and bots. Say that that was the case. So more frequently and expansively, but less influential than say the spread of malware, um, Russia continues to unleash these waves of bots leading up to major political decisions around the world. Um, and saw this with the German election recently, it's proven to be extremely influential. So many, you know, what, many people don't even really understand what bots are. <laughs> well, and I think it's like a, that plays in like a fundamental uh, <laughs> misunderstanding of like sort of how social media works, but go ahead, Austin. It, uh, let us know what a bot is. So a bot is basically a, uh, a fake account. So it can, can follow one person on Twitter, but it seems, you know, that one person could have a dozen to two dozen bots following them, which sounds like a lot, um, and it's kind of because it is. So granted, you can't measure, from a political standpoint, you can't measure voters changing their minds, but uh, social media 
in itself is sort of like the best possible ecosystem uh, for people changing their idea of what they think is valid or what their idea of what the public perception actually is. Right, exactly. And, and one of the people on Trump's uh, campaign recently, I read the story in Axios, that he said that most of his money that he used uh, for marketing for social media was directly on Facebook ad buys because mm -hmm. just to give you a sense, like radio advertisements and TV advertisements are very expensive and to buy an ad on Facebook is pennies on the dollar compared to what it costs to buy a TV spot and you could reach an extra thousand people on Facebook that you might be able to change half of their minds right. for like three dollars. And that one person thinks that various friends of theirs have changed their opinion. Right. The yeah, way. exactly. I mean, it's, it's incredible the way that social media and like people are like, oh, I saw this ad on Facebook and then you show your friend and that that's exactly mm -hmm. how it works. So, yeah. And it's all just from fake information perpetrated by a bot account in this mm -hmm. case. Yeah, so I mean anyone connected to anything can purchase bots for someone. So they assign them to your account and they watch your online activity to uh, know when to activate the bots. So um, you couple the work of bots with cyber espionage groups like Fancy Bear in Russia who single-handedly attacked German Parliament, the White House, the DNC, NATO, like all of the Emmanuel Macron's uh, election campaign. All of these things, which are much more effective than uh, millions of bots. But uh, I think it's the way in which bots are uh, paid for and acquired and uh, implemented that makes it specifically influential in a very dangerous and alarming so uh, re recently, a week ago, uh, we saw that bots began to target female politicians and female intellectuals, uh, namely the bots targeting Hillary supporters and um, not her actual. She didn't like they didn't call her out by name. Yeah, exactly. So uh, a lot of these people would start with Trump-related hashtags, but eventually Hillary's fan base would. Uh, receive lies about her unethical behavior until the user was forced offline because it became too uh, evasive to the social media experience. Um, so it, in that way, it kind of eliminates uh, the person's ability to in, to start their own idea, you know, their own campaign of political activism for one campaign. Right. It like it like upwards. beats your will to be yeah. able. To, and you see this all the time. Like if you go on a read the replies to one of Donald Trump's tweets. You'll see all these bot accounts that he actually retweets sometimes yeah. and says, oh, thank you for your support. Like, <laughs> Donald Trump, you're literally thanking a computer program yeah, that yeah. generated this tweet. And you read their bios, and it's like, hashtag 2A, hashtag thin blue line, hashtag Trump train. Yeah. Like, these are all things. And there's millions, like you said, millions of these bot accounts. And it's just meant to make you think that, like, this is all Twitter is. It's like they've already won. I might as well right. give up. Yeah. When it's just like literally some idiot controlling millions of bot accounts at once from mm -hmm. his garage. Yeah, but if, right, so if it wasn't enough that the bots were targeting supporters of a, a candidate, much less a female politician or female intellectual, uh, last week it was also reported that some ads promoting uh, African-American rights groups, uh, including Black Lives Matter um, and, and others, uh, suggesting that these same groups pose like a rising political threat uh, to kind of sway, you know, sway the users in the same way that it did with uh, 
supporters of Hillary Clinton. Uh, but yeah, in the same Washington Post article, um, they the bots highlighted uh, support the substantial support for uh, Hillary Clinton among Muslim women. So it sort of has this uh, exploitative effect on uh, hate group. Uh, in addition to Russian and Chinese related hacking groups, we see this rise of like patriotic programmers who can pretty much contact uh, anyone in Singapore or Hong Kong, set up a, you know, a hundred thousand bots, pay for them, um, choose like a date range for these bots to be effective and the number of repetitions that these bots need to either appear on an account or uh, survey when a certain user is online. Um, so with the hopes that the person expressing sound political assertions is sabotaged. Um, and so how is this effective? You kind of see this in uh, smaller elections before Trump was, uh, before Trump won the election. So you saw like a, a large proportion of fake news that people were sharing um, at an equal rate to the proportion of information released by like professional journalists or uh, trusted media outlets. Um, and so it kind of became this uh, who's who guessing game of what to actually trust. This is not the same though in Europe, even though it does affect mainly the French and German elections because of their cultures in place. You know, in German political culture, for example, there's a more investment in public media and public support of the media. Here in the US is sort of like our hobby to assault the media. Right, yeah. um, or to it's like hip and cool to say that right. you know like a corporate media is just shit and that Breitbart is real. Mm -hmm. But yeah, kind of for a lot of Germans and even the French, there's a strong trust of uh, federal integrity and confidence in um, you know, the government in place. The far right, far left groups in German Parliament and the uh, French Assembly they use the same RT content that <laughs> the bots are using uh, to spread across Twitter. Um, so what is this, what, what's in it for Russia? Like, what do they actually want to do with all of this? And there is no real strategy, it's just to uh, sort of provide this element of chaos. They want people to question everything about what they've previously known to be true. Right, this is like gaslighting to the nth degree. Yeah, yeah. So you, when you plan conflicting multiple stories, uh, everyone's confused. And so just as we saw in the past German election, uh, when people are confused, they see anarchy as a primary agenda or a primary outlet to release their frustrations. Um, and they think it's a solution. Right? And, and, and in fact, these, it's a result. Right, right. And that's when they put idiots in power. Right. And then real hell breaks loose. Mm -hmm. Like and then all the things you're worried about, all the things you're afraid of, Surprise, motherfucker, it's coming true. <laughs> yeah. uh, but how do you fix this? You know, just as you, how do you fix the social democracy of Europe? You know, it's, it's really difficult to build the, these algorithms that are fact-checking machines uh, you know, or to even promote fact-checked sources with like a higher rating on the internet um, that's, that competes with uh, a lower rating that are, that are also paying for the same ads. Uh, 
and you don't, and that doesn't really help when uh, Twitter continues to say that it's doing all that it can to uh, disallow automated tweeting when, when it doesn't do anything at all. Right, exactly. It's like uh, these, like, you know, technocrats within, you know, these social media, like, gigantic companies, they have a very, like, uh, thin line to toe here because mm -hmm. on one hand they want to try to keep uh this social media world open and stick to their original idea but on the other hand they also like really kind of like hold the purse strings here when it comes to um unleashing all this information that they don't want to play all their you know cards at once yeah that's why in the next election we'll see like a very strong technocrat we would hope yeah probably yeah prepare for exactly president what? mark zuckerberg yeah. <laughs> Okay. He's like the, the talk about like an idiot centrist. He's the biggest fucking more like he's going to Iowa to do. He's like, oh, I'm just going out here to Iowa to eat some burgers and drink some IPAs and hang out. It's like, yeah, right. Like you're not courting donors and schmoozing. Right, right, right. Well, Zuckerberg's particularly a non-starter because he uh, he's a social he's a fake social justice warrior that he advocates world peace and uh, aid that would eliminate poverty and famine and epidemics. But he's also a Silicon Valley multi-billionaire. Right. He's like a nouveau, right. yeah, exactly. a nouveau riche billionaire who got rich by stealing his idea yeah. from someone who was less smart than him. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so that uh, allows us to transition into uh, Facebook and its recent offensive ad targeting. So many may have read about offensive ad targeting in the past few weeks. Um, on Facebook that ex exploits Muslims and exploits uh, people of Jewish descent. Um, but it's difficult to really penetrate the source of this when, um, just as European firms are creating these bots, uh, they're also creating these accounts to advertise. So Facebook allows advertisers to basically discriminate against users and their racial background uh, for the sake of marketing insight or advertising strategies. So after Facebook corrected this, recently ProPublica went in using ad words for of anti-Semitic uh, dog whistles basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they quickly realized that uh, the people with those views and opinions um, were still in, related to these targeted ads, but uh, the results were minuscule, but in fact they were still able to do it and shortly after um, the approval of those ads, um, you know, it kind of exploits the idea that there's not, there's clearly not enough uh, being done about it. So on one hand, you know, it's a societal issue. Why do we actually have these public domains where people feel like uh, they, they can be comfortable posting such content? Um, that still remains an issue, more than it ever has been. Oh yeah, absolutely. And Mark Zuckerberg came out, I think, early on um, when it was released that, you know, all these ads were bought by, like, these Russian companies, Russian, like, uh, you know, uh, fronts, and he was like, oh, well, a lot of this process is automated. You know, a lot yeah. of these ad buying processes are automated. Can't do anything about it. Right, and it's like, what kind of a cop-out answer, like, right. that's like, hey, maybe he sees a future in politics because that was, like, a great deflection. But I think you're onto something with the, like, the societal issue of, like, people, um, used to like hide in the deep corners of the web to to promote these like really like what I would consider fringe views, mm -hmm. you know, like in like the dark holes of Reddit. And now, and now it's on Facebook. Disguised. Right. Now it's on Facebook. Yeah. And it's, you know, dressed up with, you know, 
uh, well-done ads from Photoshop. Yeah, you know yeah I mean? exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, it kind of provides this question, do we police uh, this type of hate speech in public domain or and now the public marketplace? <laughs> yeah, the, the, it's one thing to police what people are saying because it's fundamentally morally bankrupt, but it's another thing to allow the same hate speech to impact markets and impact how we consume things. Right, exactly. And particularly when it comes down to they're propagating false information to a to achieve a political agenda. Right. They are <laughs> they are literally just trying to scare you using a false narrative to get you to go along with their political agenda. And right. so I think that uh, Mark Zuckerberg, as an American, and also if he wants to run for president, should have a vested interest <laughs> in ensuring that his company is not allowing uh, Russian like advertisers to buy up his ad space. Uh, yeah. So either either way, we need to like implement some responsibility uh, of platforms like Facebook to come to the table with social justice, civil rights issues. You know, I mean how. Academia can have a conversation about this. People can have conversations about this type of uh, speech online. But I mean, it, it basically boils down to what Facebook has to do. Right. And I mean, I don't think there's any like, uh, for me, there's a clear answer, right? That like <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg should do whatever he can to make sure that his site is not promoting like hate speech, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing as like, they don't allow you to post porn on Facebook. Right. So if you're, uh, you know, advertising something that is using racist, anti-Semitic, or discriminatory dog whistles. Um, you know what I mean? And it's people are like people who are like pure capitalists are like, oh well, they should be able to buy whatever advertisements they want. It's like, well, would you want um, in the middle of your child's Disney programming one of these advertisements popping up? Probably not. So <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, I mean. I guess because of Charlottesville and because of the recent NFL debacle, um, we're seeing more of this because it's you know it's more transparent, it's more in our faces, it's more a part of the national consciousness than it ever has been. Uh, but not because it has never been there before. It's just because uh, we're um, realizing that it's happening. But you know, what are the consequences if we don't do anything about it? Who knows? Absolutely. So let's talk about uh, the NFL and Donald Trump's recent uh, <laughs> massive swing and a miss at uh, improving his track record on race relations. Um, recently at a rally for Donald Trump's boy, Luther Strange, um, this was not teleprompter Trump. This was off the cuff Donnie who made this comment about Players who kneel should be fired. He called them sons of bitches um, and has spent the last two weeks tweeting religiously about how <laughs> players who kneel for the national anthem or make any sort of physical gesture in protest um, ought to be fired because they are disrespecting the flag mm. and our troops. And even went as far as to stage a political event when Mike Pence went to the Colts game this weekend versus the 49ers and left after several 49ers players knelt in protest. And it was a, a, a basically like a, you know, this like 
hackish political uh, nonsense that yeah. cost that cost like uh, I think reports are saying that it was almost a half a million dollars in taxpayer money to fly Air Force Two from the West Coast back to Indianapolis and back. So it's it's basically just an extension of the theater and distraction related to like Bob Mueller's uh, inching closer to exploiting Trump. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's this whole thing of where, you know, it's just like what a magician does. You think the trick's really in the left hand, but actually it's in the right hand. And <laughs> it's a, uh, th this is just another example of the Trump administration, like just pissing on their own shoes when it comes to race. So it kind of allows us to reanalyze what the state of the, like the national conversation on race actually is. So compare this to a year and a half ago, two years ago, it seemed like we were having a national conversation about race that was, uh, that was getting close. If it, you know, it felt like people were uh, tearing down barriers uh, in dialogue, in conversation, and it seemed like there was uh, some degree of communication that hadn't been there before. Now, it's sort of uh, gone away from that variety of issues and devolved into the state of focusing on what NFL players are doing and neo-Nazism. Claims of anti-patriotism uh, are like a new low blow and something that, well, first of all, has historically always been an issue, but sec second of all, it uh, kind of deconstructs this complex and almost academic conversation we were beginning to have about race relations. Right, and it's almost like plays into like, and this is like another racist dog whistle for him. This yeah. like uh, call for patriotism that you have to stand, you have to, you know, salute the flag or whatever. It's like, you know what? These people are exercising their constitutional rights, and that seems pretty fucking patriotic yeah. to me. But what's really been striking about this is that this is like a deeply polarizing issue. And I don't necessarily mean that from a sense of like it's polarizing on Twitter, it's polarizing on Facebook. I mean, it's polarizing between like real people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And not only that, but then staging all these like political events. Like, you know what I mean? Every single thing has become. Trump even went on. <laughs> Mike Huckabee's new show, which I know we're going to talk about later. He went on Mike Huckabee's new show and was like, oh, I think people are, are really upset seeing this and the ratings are bad. It's like, no, they're not. <laughs> the yeah. NFL rating, I've just watched the NFL for the first time in years this past weekend because I'm like, what's going on? It's Yeah, it's rehashing, it's regurgitating um, previous protests against like you know police brutality, social injustice um, in general, but also in sports. Um, even in the 1968 Mexico City Olympics, you had uh, protests over racial discrimination back home during the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, throughout college football, you've had many different protests, even in the form of like black armbands being worn against such universities as BYU and their uh, policy on not allowing uh, black students into their priesthood or whatever, whatever the hell BYU does. <laughs> Right. Uh, his reference to black athletes as not being loyal is, is yes, is troubling, but uh, it's kind of expected from a man who continues to like unravel civil rights and social justice policies, and like you were saying, creates contradictions to avoid probably the inevitable uh, damning evidence that we're right. That's emerge. coming out of like this Russia probe, and I think this plays into like a larger kind of. Uh, trend for Donald Trump where I don't think he particularly um, believes uh, that you have to stand for the 
for the national anthem. But I do think that it's a stance that he took, and he he's shown that like he demands loyalty from people who work for him or from anyone in, from anyone and everyone in general. And so for him, he took this stance that you should stand for the national anthem. And now every time someone doesn't do what he says, he views that as someone not giving him their loyalty. And like right. he needs that like positive affirmation from people. But also so that's why he keeps doubling down on this right. really it's stupid. You're literally wasting valuable political capital and social capital on a nothing fight. Many people just need the substantiated physical evidence of Yes, this is the state of race relations currently in 2017. Right, which it's uh, it's actually pretty fucking incredible that it's, <laughs> it has to be boiled down like that. Um, and it's incredible also to think that, you know, sure, there's always been like a an underlying um, sense of like a political thread within sports, but now it's become like very overt, I feel like. You know right. what I mean? And every generation, well, of course, has those um, standout athletes that represent almost... You know what I mean? Uh, an entire like spectrum of racial um, yeah. inequality, with but they're representing that within their sport. Yeah. And I think we're seeing that now with Colin Kaepernick um, and with all these NFL protests. Um, uh, from one standpoint, it's like you're trying to bring people around something, uh, to rally people around something that we can all get behind, like this American identity. This is our flag. This is our icon that we all rally behind. This is our sport. Right. It's like you know what? I get it. That that's what you want. Unfortunately, if it were a problem like a simple social problem, you could probably get people to do that. But, you know, racial injustice is not a simple problem that you could just ask people to put that aside and be an American. Right, but you can't ask people to turn on the television and watch a football game. Right. But, you know, sports have always been this uh, predicting reliable gauge of what's to come as far as social progress goes, especially in relation to race. So we mentioned earlier that Mike Huckabee now has his own show, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that a little bit and how that relates to sort of this rise of Christian media under Donald Trump. So recently, there was an article in the Atlantic um, where they interviewed uh, famed asshole and former Arkansas Governor uh, Mike Huckabee about uh, leaving Fox News behind for a show of his own at, uh, at the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Um, he said in the interview that this show is not going to be necessarily a straight-up Christian show, but it will constitute, quote, wholesome programming that won't um, make people feel like they need to take a shower after watching it. I noticed the TBN has changed their logo. It's like sleek and... Just to, to just a picture of Mike Huckabee's face. <laughs> there were several like really disturbing quotes that uh, that I pulled out of this article, but some things that were very telling um, were that Mike Huckabee spent um, most of the time actually defending Trump's um, tumultuous past behavior, citing it as just you know old news, throwing it away, saying that's not how he acts anymore, um, and in response to whether Trump is a Christian or not, um, Mike Huckabee said, they don't care whether or not the guy believes as they do, they just want someone who will respect their beliefs. Which is pretty fucking incredible um, that, you know, people who say, like, we want a real Christian in, in the White House, like, and you elected a sexual predator. Right. Um, he also said, 
Uh, he has not pretended that he's sitting in the front row of church or that he's memorized any Bible verses. He's in his car in the parking lot. Right. But literally, he has gone, he has done numerous interviews saying, oh, I belong to this church, I belong to this church. So he literally, okay, he has lied about sitting in the front row of church. He has given speeches, like the famous one at Liberty University, where he said two Corinthians, like where he's <laughs> trying to memorize. So this is literally just fake news. And he said, he also said, there are a lot of people, I think this is Austin's favorite quote. There are a yeah. lot of people whose hatred of him is irrational, and it's so intense that it borders on a derangement. As if their own religious hysteria was not derangement. Right, as if Donald Trump's hatred of Hillary Clinton or Barack <laughs> Obama is not so intense and irrational that it borders on derangement. And so Donald Trump appeared on Mike Huckabee's, or we could call him Mike Cuckabee. There you go. On Mike Cuckabee's first... Uh, it was like the inaugural episode of his TV show on uh, on, T on TBN. And uh, the highlight from this interview was that Trump actually claimed to have invented, <laughs> invented the word fake. Um, Mike Huckabee was asking Donald Trump about um, being portrayed negatively in the news. And <laughs> Donald Trump was like, well, I don't necessarily think that I've heard it. He's like, I think one of the good things that I've done is uh, I really came up with this word fake. I don't, some people might have used it before. I've never heard it, but I came up with the term fake news. It's like so he's asserting that uh, he was he established like the word fake, right. right? The whole thing basically this was one big puff piece for Donald Trump. I don't know how many people actually watch this because I don't know if TBN is part of like a basic cable subscription or not. I think it's just on Mike Huckabee's website. Yeah, exactly, and it's like only Sarah Huckabee Sanders is watching. Right. And then his son, who's in prison for, you know, like, beating dogs or whatever. Really? Yeah. Wow. Mike Huckabee's son is, like, has a history of torturing animals. Jesus. He's a deranged animal. Yeah, he's a deranged monster. He's terrible. I had no idea. Yeah, but, so, <laughs> Mike Huckabee said, <laughs> this, is, this is what Mike Huckabee said. He said, you were a rock star in Puerto Rico. I saw the video of it. <laughs> <laughs> This is disgusting. <laughs> I mean, it's great. He also said, you have a lot of things out there on the horizon, including North Korea yeah, and Kim Jong-un, or as you like to call him, Rocket Man, which I thought was a great moniker. Like, Mike Huckabee was <laughs> basically just fawning over Donald you know, Trump. for uh, <laughs> yeah, Donald Trump in TVN's secret headquarters, exactly. a.k.a. his garage. That's the wholesome programming that they were, that he was talking about. It does actually, there's an interesting thing that, to point out in this, and that since um, taking office, Donald Trump has only made it a point to do interviews with like conservative news outlets. In fact, he or some sort of surrogate has appeared on Fox News 78 times since he's been president. Yeah. CNN, eight times. MSNBC, six times. And those are just Trump officials on TV. Trump has not sat down with anyone um, from CNN since he's been president. So this sort of... Well, CNN was his first uh, fall man. As, in, right, exactly. As far as establishing what fake news. Right, and news. so this just like uh, shows us the rapid growth of these like uh, right-wing bastions of uh, ludicrous thought and how like, you know, the president of the United States going on going on these, you know, TV shows and doing these interviews gives them, you know, credibility.
Alright, we'll stick around for more of the cutaway. Alright everyone, so today on the pod we are talking to Tyler Crochet, uh, one of the people who is spearheading a collegiate recovery program at USC, and we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, what this program is and where it's headed. Um, and before we do that, um, I'm just going to give a little bit of background on why this, uh, why this subject is so important. Uh, the first of which being that um, just under eight weeks ago, uh, President Trump declared the uh, opioid crisis in the United States as a state of emergency, um, yet there have been no uh, task forces or anything of the nature, committees, anything assembled to address this. Um, not only that, but the opioid crisis has been a sticking point for some moderate Republicans in the Senate when it has come to the failed health care votes, um, both over the summer and recently. Uh, so today we're going to be talking a little bit about the opioid and addiction crisis, um, and specifically what we're doing here in Columbia, South Carolina, to uh, to combat that. So we're going to welcome Tyler to the pod today. Thank you. Um, so Tyler, just uh, if you could give us a, a brief background on uh, on your experience in the recovery community um, and what some things look like, uh, you know putting these tools into a, uh, into a practical sense. Thanks, Max. Um, so, uh, you know, some of my practical experience, you know, a couple of years ago was uh, using these resources that they are, offer. So some of those resources would include detox, um, treatment, inpatient, outpatient, um, and then recovery communities, which is kind of just like a sober living environment. And, um, you know, being... A person who has been to all of those environments, um, you know, from detox to inpatient to the recovery community, um, you know, I've got to witness firsthand how those can help people uh, who struggle with addiction, in particular, um, you know, opiate addiction. You know, I uh, myself struggle with opiate addiction, and you know, was a resident at many inpatient rehabs. I did outpatient. Um, you know, I then went to uh, you know live at a sober living community in Sumter and stayed there for a while but uh you know some of the practical applications that we can see these resources that you know you, we hear the um congress talking about in DC you know some of these resources that they can offer is funding for whether it be inpatient or whether it be government funding for um state run facilities to offer treatment to people who are suffering from addiction um or nonprofits are growing rapidly so grants um that can help um you know help those nonprofit facilities stay in business. Um, these are some of the things that we haven't really seen a lot of dollars allocated to, towards that. We've seen a lot of talk about the dollars, but we haven't really seen the dollars move yet. It's a bipartisan issue, right? Because the disease of addiction doesn't discriminate. Right. So it's easy for both sides to back this issue. Um, but what the fear is, is it's more of a political uh, kind of stunt. You know, they just get behind it because they know so many people are affected by it, but we're not seeing the action or the, you know, the movement um, behind the words. So it's just a lot of political rhetoric right at this point. 
like we said when we uh, introduced you here, that you are one of the uh, individuals who's spearheading this collegiate recovery program um, at the University of South Carolina here. Can you just give us a little bit of background on what prompted you to start this idea um, and what has led you um, to where the project is now? Okay, yeah, definitely. I, uh, I first learned about a collegiate recovery program in 2012, um, maybe 2011 even, uh, late 2000. No, early 2012, and uh, I, uh, a buddy of mine had talked about one they had at a university in Alabama, and uh, Texas Tech was another one that he talked about, and it's a community of people who are in recovery um, who kind of participate in the same activities. They provide community. They provide um, you know support to students who are getting back into that what can be struggling environment of the collegiate um, environment, you know, which caters to a lot of alcohol and drug abuse. Um, and it's kind of providing a different alternative to that lifestyle. Uh, you know, for me, what really got me interested and invested in it was I was a college dropout from LSU and I knew that I wanted to get back into school. I knew that I wanted to finish my education. I just didn't know what me going back on a college campus would look like. I know that my experience at LSU was a lot of alcohol and a lot of drugs. And I didn't feel comfortable getting back into that environment, um, having just found recovery. So what the idea behind this is for students who are in recovery, whether newly in recovery or um, long-term in recovery, they go on a college campus and they already have that community. They don't have to worry about, you know, where they're gonna find the friends to go see a movie or go on a hike with or go hang out with. That community is already there and established. All they have to do is sign up and get plugged in. And so that's kind of what really got me moving and passionate about it. You know, the biggest advantage to a program like this is you have students who are in recovery and they're almost advocates for recovery just by their behavior and their actions on campus. And so, right. you know, it, it gives those students who may be struggling with addiction and, you know, don't really know if they want to go to, they don't may not want to go to treatment. They may not, but they just have questions or they want to, you know, they want to see what recovery can be like. Um, you know, this makes that alternative attractive because you see students enjoying their college career and being successful and being, you know, good members of their college campus. Um, and so this is, it's almost, it's an attractive way to, you know, promote recovery. Right. Absolutely. So far, the program um, is just like ramping up um, engagement and everything. What are some things that listeners can do to help support the CRP um, and help it grow and reach its, you know, full potential? Yeah. So, like you said, we're in the very early stages. You know, we've been kind of working towards this for a couple of years now, kind of getting moving. I think we're finally getting to the place where we're starting to get, you know, a good student base. Um, we got around 10 to 15 students who, you know, are interested in, in they come to meetings and participate. Um, and so we're holding cookouts, we're doing stuff like that. Um, but just for the listeners who may not be in recovery or may not need recovery, I think just talking about it in the community, you know, talking about, you know, friends and family and just sharing with them, like, listen to this program. This is what this program is. I mean, education is big, one of the biggest tools around this addiction because there's such a negative stigma around it. And so the more we talk about it in our community, the more we embrace it and just fully accept it for what it is, I think the more that a program like this can grow. And, you know, so, and then of course, you know, we're raising money to get the program started off the ground. And so, you know, if you have, you know, people who are willing to participate and help out, you know, with um, donations, you know, we meet with people and trying to raise money and trying to get, because the reality is it takes a full-time person to run the community. Um, it takes marketing and all that kind of stuff because it's, it's, a, it's a 
part of the budget with the university and they want to see that there's investment from the community. They want to see that people are invested in seeing this work. And, uh, you know, so there's numerous ways, you know, but the biggest key, uh, I know a lot of people can't give money. Um, and that's just talking about it and kind of the more students that know about this and know that it's an option, the better. Right. Absolutely. Um, so essentially right now, awareness is key as well as being able to ramp up, you know, financial and uh, community support for this really right now sounds like they're paramount to helping this program grow. Absolutely, and I think awareness brings uh, the second part of that, which is gonna be funding. Absolutely, there was a, an article recently in the state by a journalist named Avery Wilkes who made this really funny comment about how the university is hamstrung yeah, by yeah. a billion dollar budget. Yeah, but Avery's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, was, that was pretty good so to see that uh, if we can convince the University of South Carolina, not necessarily convince them, but show them through community support, community support um, just how important this program is, that the money is there. It's just, at this point, it's awareness just, and yeah, really yeah, helping absolutely. you to get, to get just, the ball rolling. I think pressure is always good, and that's what those articles are about. It's kind right. of holding them accountable. Okay, so recently um, you were asked to speak at um, a forum that was convened by Governor McMaster um, on the opioid crisis um, and addiction at large within South Carolina. Could you just tell us a little bit about um, the purpose of this forum in a little bit more detail than I have, um, as well as like your part in it and what you might have taken away from it. Absolutely. So the forum was put on by the governor and DeOtis, which is a government agency, Department of Alcohol, Abuse, Drug, Other Substances. I might have butchered that, but uh, they kind of put this whole forum together. And what it is is you had people from nurses to um, EMS to people who work in the field, whether Laredo, Acomores Village, uh, state agencies, private agencies, all these people in one room, over 500 people, just to talk about um, ways to help the opiate um, epidemic is what it is, and just kind of talk about how to help this and how to uh, combat this. The governor used the analogy of a storm, and that's what it is, to how to combat this storm and how to, um, you know, make it, you know, not such an epidemic anymore and help out. Um, and so I was asked to speak there kind of just to share my experience with um, opiate addiction and just kind of talk about, you know, some of the people, the resources that I used in getting uh, re recovered. And um, so I, I got the opportunity to address the crowd and it was a very humbling experience. And, um, you know, I, I love any opportunity I can to advocate for addiction because I think that's how the stigma, uh, this negative stigma that surrounds it is going to be killed as we embrace it and we say, you know, I'm a person in recovery. And, uh, you know, before I found recovery, you know, I was a Oxycontin addict, you know, and I didn't have a life. But today I found recovery and, you know, I'm a successful member of society now. I always believe that everyone is going to find, everyone who needs recovery will find it given the opportunity. Um, it's just giving them the opportunity and uh, it just takes time sometimes. And sometimes it's exhausting to see the process, but, uh, you know, it just, it can work. Right on, man. Well, uh, Tyler, thank you for taking the time to do this interview thank with me. Thank you for me. having and, me. It's uh, been good. Listeners, be sure to uh, check out some more information on the, uh, the CRP. You'll be able to check it out through our Facebook and Twitter pages. Um, and we will continue on with more of the cutaway after this. Okay, so before we begin to wrap things up, I think we would be remiss without going over sort of recapping the recent healthcare fight um, with the failure of the Graham-Cassidy healthcare bill, if you could even call it a healthcare bill.
Um, this bill was constructed very similarly to how the other health care, uh, the ACA repeal efforts were done earlier in the summer. And it was done behind closed doors, quickly, without any committee hearings on it, and without a CBO score. Um, essentially, what Lindsey Graham tried to do was <laughs> construct block grants, which he thinks is like the messiah of exactly. healthcare. Right? He, that's been his uh, that's been his solution for years. Um, he tried to you know designate block grants to certain states, and the most insidious part of that is that he wanted to take money away from blue states who accepted the Medicare expansion to give it to red states who did not accept the Medicare expansion. Outright corruption. Right. The, basically one of the most petty political moves you could possibly uh, possibly possibly play out here. But we were talking about how this is Lindsey Graham's attempt just to get uh, in the spotlight for what, however long he can. Right, exactly. I he mean, knows and many people know this is in no way a functional proposition or right, that it was just nothing <laughs> yeah. right, because like he hasn't really been in the news lately for being vocal um, against Trump. So he had to get in the news for doing something. And I'm pretty sure that now after this recent failure of his, that he's going to be relegated to, um, you know, like a lower status until he, you know, sucks up to Mitch McConnell again or whatever. White house. Sunday school. Yeah, teacher. exactly. Again, have to do something. And, um, Basically, the failure of this bill, aside from the fact that it's just fucking terrible, is um, sort of something that I think the Republicans are going to have to deal with, and I hope that they continue to struggle with <laughs> moving forward, is that they can't get their various wings within the party together. We said this in episode one, that there are these various fissures within the, <laughs> the Republican Party where there are many um, different you know agendas going on at once, and when you try to cater to... The conservative branch of the Republican Party, you're going to leave out the moderates. And when you try to pick up the moderates, you're going to lose, like, fucking Ted Cruz and Rand Paul. It's like a proxy discussion uh, related to how they can resolve their internal fights. Right, exactly. I mean, it has no outcome. This is not going to happen. Right. And moreover, you know, now you have Donald Trump talking to... Um, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi about making yet another deal with them on a bipartisan health care bill. Um, who knows what that's actually going to end up looking like, um, because I'm fairly confident that the Democrats just want to improve the ACA and not scrap it and start over. Um, now, moving forward, um, I think the Republicans realize that they are up for a tough battle when it comes to any other larger um legislative action um but that's not to say that the white house still isn't um you know making moves like the total shitbags they are and that now the department of health and human services are making it more difficult to enroll for the affordable care act where they're taking down the website for like 16 hours a day only making it available from like 3 to 3 30 a.m on like a wednesday they've slashed the advertising budget um, by 90%, um, and they're not using any of the uh, marketing tools to let people know when open enrollment was. And not only that, this was going on amidst the whole scandal about Tom Price <laughs> using like a, right, the whole uh, private charter planes costing hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxpayer money. Meanwhile, his department is saying that we can't afford to give people health care. 
So this is what you're dealing with in the White House. That's why we're here. That's why we're going to be talking about these issues. That's why we're going to be making sure that people know exactly what's going on. Right. I mean, it's always this uh, this idea that, yes, it, it has no utility uh, because it has no – it's not innovative in any way. But when you realize that, you also have this preposterous uh, side story, like you were saying, the <laughs> private jet scandal, right. just, to, just to further – uh, support what you think. Right. I mean, the whole thing, it's almost like uh, you can't believe this is happening. And any of these scandals, any one of these scandals would have been more than enough to set the American public and the media off about any other president. Mm -hmm. But with Donald Trump, we expect all these things to happen. I wake up every morning and have to tell myself, don't get on Twitter, don't get on his page to see what kind of really stupid shit he said. Or don't check the news as soon as you get out of bed to see what kind of stupid shit they're up to. This exudes confusion. Right. So, Austin, I think we're ready to wrap today up. Why don't we talk about what Anthony Weiner's up to? Well, he's in jail for 21 what, What's he going to be doing for the next 21 months? You think Not he's reading work, the... Working on his portfolio? His picture portfolio? <laughs> yeah. He's going to art school. Yeah, he's going to art school. Wiener art. <laughs> the Wiener art school. <laughs> Oh, Abu Bakir Al Smack Daddy is still alive. Yeah, he's still alive. Russians lied. Catalan independence is sort of a touchy issue. You have these images of the civil guard rushing into election facilities, snatching these plastic boxes where uh, ballots would have been submitted. But also, many people believe it's a uh, like an image set up where really no one within Spain has a strong enough conviction to fight for uh, Catalan independence and Madrid certainly doesn't care. Um, and when Madrid doesn't care, the international community doesn't care. Absolutely. Right. I mean, and there are also people who are part of that set who have been marching in the streets saying like, no, we are Spanish. Like it, it's right. the, there's the whole, uh, whole thing. Playing a lot of people right from now. the outside looking in, uh, tend to forget that uh, Catalonian terrorist organizations during the 70s and 80s were a thing. You know, they're responsible for many hundreds of murders throughout Spain and kidnappings. So there's that fundamental distrust and anxiety related to allowing uh, Catalonian independence. Right. And it wouldn't be an episode of The Cutaway without finding out what America's handsomest man and future president, George Clooney, is up to. George Clooney recently sat down and did an interview with The Daily Beast where he, in a direct quote, says, Steve Bannon is a pussy. <laughs> Steve Bannon is a little wannabe who would do anything in the world to have had a script made in Hollywood. Um, so again, we got George Clooney, handsomest man in America, um, doubling down... <laughs> on Steve Bannon being a little bitch. Um, also, it's uh, there is a really funny part of this interview where he said that, you know, in Donald Trump calling out coastal elites, um, George Clooney's from Kentucky. For those of you who don't know, he grew up in like you know the post Jim Crow South, and Donald Cold Trump country. shit right, and Donald Trump shits in a gold toilet. So <laughs> let's let that sink in for a second. We look forward to hearing more of what George Clooney has to say. Personally, I hope he announces a presidential bid soon so that I can run his campaign here in South Carolina because 
No one wants to fangirl over George Clooney more than I do. Thank you everyone so much for joining us. We are now on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash thecutawaypod. We are also on SoundCloud and iTunes. All you have to search for is The Cutaway. Uh, next episode, our friend Emily Haney will be joining us to discuss some things that two straight white guys are not equipped to talk about. Oh, yeah. uh, prepare to have your privilege checked. Uh, she'll delve deep into the discourse surrounding today's most prevalent social issues and trends. Right, and hopefully make fun of us a lot. We're kind of looking forward to that a lot. <laughs> That's my All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Cutaway, and we will see you next week.